hope you all have your Bibles. You can open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I, I went to a, a secular university for my bachelor's degree, and I took a history class, and I remember learning in this history class um, some details about the, uh, the time period right after or during the, the last part, portion of the Crusades, and how in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, how at one point a certain sect of, uh, of monks called the Jesuits, who are known to go out to do evangelism, often in hostile territories, were granted permission by the bishops and the pope of the time to lie if it made it possible for them to escape imprisonment so that they could continue preaching the gospel. And I, I don't know if that professor had that right. I tend to uh, be skeptical of anything I learn about the church from a secular source. Uh, but I remember hearing that, and it didn't sit right with my heart. It didn't seem that that was a, a good policy to hold, that, that lying is not right unless it is expedient, unless it keeps you from something you really don't want to experience. Is there always an exception to every rule? Which rules, if any, that God has given to us are meant to be bent or broken when the time is right? Is there ever a right time to disregard God's law? What happens when there is something that should be even more important to us than life itself? Can we afford to do what is wrong even though it seems practical? So the passage that we're going to be studying today in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14, is going to talk about whether it is okay to subvert the law of God if it is very useful to do so. So let's read this passage of Scripture together, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's guidance in our hearts as we try to interpret it well. We're going to begin in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Let's bow our heads together and thank the Lord for what he will teach us today. Mighty God, you have, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, sought to help us understand the difference between substance and shadow. Father, you are teaching us how much of this life that we live in today essentially is vanity. It is like a mist that vanishes. It is a time of transition. It is not always what it appears to be. And so because we need better eyes, because we need to understand this reality from a heavenly perspective and not just from an earthly one, we pray, Lord God, that you would get us beyond ourselves today. We ask that you would humble us. We ask that you would ready us to be taught. We pray that you would help us to rejoice when you tear down strongholds in us that are inaccurate, that do not belong, now that we belong to you. 
I pray, God, that we would not only receive it for our benefit and blessing, but that we would also be willing and ready to turn around and share these wonderful truths with others in the world, many of whom do not have a Savior in Jesus Christ, many of whom are strangers to your kingdom or worse enemies. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would put this word into us, not only to fill us, but to overflowing so that we might share it with others. We love you and thank you for this time you have ordained for us to be together with you in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins with an ending. And then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. It begins with an ending, with a sense of memorial service. Solomon is saying that in his journeys, in his uh, learning throughout his life in this earth, he has seen the funerals for many, many wicked people who were, were buried, who received a, a proper burial, even some who violated God's law. You might not know how important it was for the Hebrew people especially that when their life on earth came to an end, that the physical vessel that God had blessed them with to dwell with on earth, though imperfect, that it would be laid to rest carefully, that they would do proper respect to the body that God had given to them. That is why we are told small details throughout the Old Testament about where certain people were laid to rest and about how sometimes people would go to great lengths to go and retrieve the, the remains of their loved one to bring that loved one back to the Holy Land, back to the place where they were born so they might be buried with those whom they had walked life with, or with the ancestors that had gone before them. Burial was an important thing, and so to be buried properly was an honor in the Hebrew faith. It is immediately ironic, then, that these proper and right burials that we read about here in verse 10 are being given to people who are wicked and who did not spend their days following after the Lord and caring about the things that He cared for. Though they don't deserve to be, such, be shown such dignity and mercy, their bodies are laid carefully in the ground, and more, they are praised by the people who lived with them in their time on earth. But don't miss the plain statement that's being made by this fact. Whether their memorials were honorable or dishonorable, the truth remains that they are no longer here. God has brought an end to the life of these wicked people, and judgment has been rendered to them. Whatever wicked deeds that they performed while they were alive and seemingly free, whatever rebellion they were given to, whatever rules they violated, they still died. They had to face that ending that every one of us faces. Their wicked ways did nothing to help them avoid sin's most serious judgment. And the wages of sin, we know, is death. You hear the wicked pass away and are buried just like every other created thing. All our evaluations of life must take that final destination into account. Death is an unavoidable reality. And we've seen Solomon coming back to it again and again. No matter how frustrating life here on earth seems to him, he always is grounded in the fact that it isn't eternal. Life here is not forever. So we're going to circle back again to the finality of death later in the sermon, but first Solomon makes some observations about the way that the wicked conducted themselves before their life came to an end. 
We are told that these wicked people were no strangers to God's house. Though we see what went on in their hearts, we're told that they were truly wicked, that they were not strangers at the temple of God. There was a semblance of religiosity in their lives. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. And then Solomon qualifies that by saying this also is vanity. The very people whom Solomon saw buried seemed to perform some very good spiritual deeds during their time here on earth. They were often spotted where they were supposed to be, giving their offerings, singing praises with their heads bowed in prayer. And in fact, though Solomon knows these men had wicked hearts, they had such a good reputation among the people that knew them that they were praised in their passing. But this praise is a veneer that hid the truth. Their hearts were full of sin. The judgment of the heart stands. They did not glorify the Lord. Rather, they lived for themselves. And though they were praised by their earthly judges, by the people around them, their praise and approval amounted to vanity. It was nothing of substance. There is only one true judge, and we cannot escape his perfect ruling over us. What emboldens the wicked to break God's commands? One major factor in this is the delay in the execution of judgment upon the guilty. Solomon reveals that the fact that God does not immediately slay us down for our wickedness, but is patient and long-suffering with us, though that is a great benefit and blessing to us, it does have the side effect that many are not as afraid of God as judge as they ought to be. There is a mercy that is shown to every man that is sometimes referred to as common grace. God's wrath is not immediately poured out on those who violate his law. Instead, God's verdict and sentence is restrained for a time. It's the reason why Adam and Eve were able to walk out of the garden. Now, they were cast away from the tree of life, but they were still walking and breathing. The wages of sin was truly death upon them. Spiritually, they had become dead because of their sin, but God did not strike them down in that moment. And so too we all, having violated God's law and having earned the wage of sin, which is death, we all live in a state of present common grace, whereby God is giving us in this very moment what we do not deserve. He's giving us time. He is patient with us. And it makes me think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9. He said in verses 22 through 24, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's not speaking hypothetically here. He's speaking in an artistic way about what God has chosen to do. That God has decided that it is best not to punish immediately, but instead to strive with those who are rebellious of heart. To allow for a time them to see how much better it is to strive with the Lord than to oppose Him with rebellion. 
and God will be glorified. He will be glorified when those who have Jesus Christ as their Savior turn from their sin, repent, and are redeemed and reconciled and brought near to God again. He will be glorified in that. And he will also be glorified in those whom he is patient, whom he strives with for years and years, and yet they choose in their obstinance to not say yes to Christ. They choose instead to be their own God and face punishment for it. And God will be glorified when ultimately that rebellion is judged in their lives as well. Whether you have given your life to Jesus Christ and been saved or not, make no mistake about it, you are experiencing at least a temporary grace that allows you to dwell with a stubborn and obstinate heart and yet not face immediate punishment for that rebellion. But the consequence of God's patience and willingness to delay judgment, a side effect of that, is that it gives people room to convince themselves that they will avoid God's perfect judgment. Since it doesn't happen right now, maybe, just maybe, they think it won't happen later either. They come to believe that they will get away with their iniquity, and since the uh, the threat of judgment has been abated, they set their hearts to disobey the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 19 talks about a person who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. See the attitude there. I will be safe, though I continue to be stubborn in heart. And we see from verse 10 that sometimes those who are stubborn of heart on the outside seem to be soft at heart. They walk through the paces of what appears to be faithfulness, but within, they are still their own God in their mind. They do not believe that their wickedness will be punished, and so they don't repent of it. They don't turn away from that stubborn sin. This is a false confidence of a spiritual kind. We read also in Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, David writes, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? What does that mean? The wicked believes that God will not call the bluff of the wicked, that God will not bring them into judgment, that they will not stand before a holy God. They believe that. They cry out rebelliously that that will not happen. But verse 14, but God, you do see, you do see what they are doing. For you, not, you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked in evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. In other words, David in the psalm here writes that it is good for God to punish to a degree so that people will see the power of sin in their lives. They will see how wicked and twisted it is and they might repent and be like those who have found a father in the Lord God. But so many still remain obstinate and uh, prideful and believe that they will not be called to account before the Lord. Because judgment is not seen immediately, they are emboldened. And this short-sighted view of God's justice leads to a way of life that prioritizes the here and now, prioritizes the temporary pleasures of life over the long-term consequences of our actions. And this way of life is sometimes called pragmatism. 
Pragmatism is assigning value to an idea or an action not based on a universal decree made by God, but based on whether that idea or action is practically useful in the here and the now. So it is the way that people view life. They are not viewing and valuing things based on whether God said they are good or bad, but rather on whether they see them as expedient and useful right now. When you are trying to decide whether something is worth doing, whether it is wise, whether it is good, the, der- the determining factor for the pragmatic person is, does it work? Does it help me achieve the objectives that I set out to accomplish? In this mindset, the ends justify the means. God's commands and precepts are ideals that a pragmatist might feel inclined to put aside for a moment in so much as they often do not help a person achieve their short-term desires and can in fact create inconvenient roadblocks to a person being able to achieve what they want. For example, people want to be loved, don't they? People want to experience the passion of being desired. They want to be free to express trust and affection in dramatic ways to other people. God in His great love has made provisions for that but it involves joining oneself to another in the covenant promise of marriage. Marriage takes time. Marriage takes commitment. Marriage takes sacrifice. These are not prices that many people are willing to pay in the pursuit of the love that they desire to feel. And so the pragmatist may render a judgment in their heart and in their minds. What God decrees is not practical or useful for me in this area of my life. So in order to get what I want, in order to achieve what is more valuable to me, love and affection, I will join the millions of other people in my society who think the same way that I do, who think practically and use common sense. I will set God's law to the side in regards to love, and I will achieve what I want in a more practicable and reasonable way. I will do my own thing. And so it is very rare to hear nowadays of a man or a woman who honors God by refusing to engage in sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage. Pragmatism is alive and well in America. It is the default mode of most human beings in our nation. Those who take a pragmatic approach to life argue that there are many benefits to the philosophy. They often get what they want and they get it sooner because they don't let a bunch of antiquated rules prevent them from pursuing what is on their mind. They are more able to adjust to their circumstances, they may argue. When they are a Christian in Rome, they don't need to act like a Christian. They'll just act like a Roman. I don't have to have a set of inconvenient truths hindering my possibilities and holding me back from experiencing life the way that I want to experience. I'll just uh, set aside that portion of what God commands for now so that I can adapt and fit in. Most of us trust our own wisdom more than we trust anybody else's wisdom. And pragmatism makes me the ultimate judge of what is best for me in any given situation. It's not that a pragmatist isn't open to outside wisdom or consultation. But when the rubber hits the road, the pragmatist decides for themselves what they want, and therefore they decide what is best. The pragmatist is not interested in making you necessarily believe everything that they believe. What works for you may be different from what works for them. The pragmatist 
is flexible. So why is pragmatism so dangerous? What is the problem with pragmatism? If I have come to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then what is the problem with holding to this philosophical mindset that is so widespread today? I'll give you three reasons this morning. The first one is this. God often calls us to do what goes against common sense. When the Lord God calls us to be followers after Christ, we begin to trust in His will for us more than we trust in our own will for ourselves. And that is reflected in many of the things that He calls us to do or believe through Scripture. When Jesus Christ tells His followers that if you want to follow after Me, you have to deny yourself. You have to pick up your cross, which means there must be a willingness for you to even die for the things that you're saying are valuable to you here. That to be my servant, you've got to die to your old way of life. And then you've got to follow after me daily. That flies in the face of common sense for us. If we want to get what we want, that's the opposite of denying the self, isn't it? It seems paradoxical. And Jesus ups the ante a notch and he says, if you want to gain your life, then you must lose it. You must be willing to hand it over to the Lord God. Because in the hands of the Lord God, your life will become what it was meant to be. But if you keep your life back for yourself, and you insist that you know how to live, and you will choose for yourself how to conduct yourself in this world, then you will never experience the fullness of life that God designed you for. You will never experience closeness with the Lord God. You will remain an enemy to Him, and it will truly hinder life and so though it sounds like a paradox, if you want to really live, you have got to die to what you were and put your life in the hands of God and trust Him. We hear things like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not common sense to us. Common sense to us is, blessed are those who are filled to the brim with righteousness, who look more righteous than everybody else around them. They're the blessed ones. Oh, blessed are the, those who mourn? No, 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 no. Blessed are those who never lose anyone. They're the ones who are blessed. They don't have to deal with the mourning and the hardship and the loss. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And the world says, no, blessed are those who make their own path, even if that means stepping on someone else's head to get there. The world's common sense does not match so many of the commandments of Christ. He even tells us that we are to, as we prayed earlier, to love our enemies. If there's anybody in this world that the human heart doesn't think is worthy of love, it's our enemy. And yet Christ says, care for them as well. Show them concern. Realize that the image of God is born in them as well. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have a king who determines right and wrong on your behalf. He does it more accurately and more thoroughly than you ever could. His perception of what is good and right trumps whatever sense you have that seems common at the time but falls short of an omniscient God who knows all things and sees all things. He declares, he decrees, and though his judgments may not happen immediately, praise God for that, that he is patient with us and doesn't strike us down instantly at our sin. Though his judgments do not happen immediately, they will come to pass. So the first reason we need to be weary of this idea of pragmatism is that it relies on what is called common sense. And common sense is inferior to God's sense. 
Secondly, just because a way of life is popular, that doesn't mean that it is best. That doesn't mean that it is best. Consensus does not determine what is right or wrong. Just because everyone else is doing a thing or approving of a thing, that does not make it wise for you. I want to look at something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. So you can turn there if you'd like to. So much of our conduct is informed by what Jesus preached to the people in this very powerful homily that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And whether you realize it or not, Jesus is actually confronting pragmatism in this important sermon in many places. So I want to read just a couple of verses from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. Jesus declares, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus here points out two gates. I hesitate to call these symbolic gates. I hesitate to refer to them as a metaphor because in a very real way, we will leave this place one day. We will exit the earth, the material realm that we live in right now, and we will enter into a more eternal place, will we not? So it is very likely that the gates that Jesus speaks of here are not merely places in the mind, but literal gateways, (coughs) one or the other of which we must eventually have to walk through. A friend, these gates, lead to new places, but they don't both lead to the same place. There is a narrow gate. It is not a very popular gate, and for very practical reasons. The way to get to this gate is extremely hard. It is thick with trials and hardships. It is a way that people turn away from very easily, because it is a way that demands more of us. It is not a way that is natural to the heart and to the sensibilities of man. The gate itself is very narrow. There are not many paths to it. There is only one path. And if you want to pass into this gate, you must pass through it in a very specific way, through Christ. There is a different gate, though, and you can be assured that most people find this gate a lot more appealing than the first. The way to get into this gate is very easy. In fact, it doesn't really matter which way you go. You can almost always get to this wide gate. All paths in life but one lead to this same gate. You don't really have to try to get there. Your heart's going to naturally lead you there unless you choose to follow the Word of God, unless the Lord God grabs a hold of you and directs you to the narrow gate. Your heart naturally draws you to this wide gate, so it is much more immediately practical and expedient to take this route. That is why it is wide, and why the vast majority of people enter in, streaming through that same very way, that very same way. But there is a bit of a problem here. The practical way, the way that makes the most sense to people, the way that costs the least and is the most pleasurable, the way that is by far the more popular way, leads to destruction. It is a gateway that takes us to judgment and right punishment. Do you see that the majority opinion, the common consensus, is not always right, friends? 
if these two gates represented a democracy, who would win the vote in a landslide? The wide gate would win. That's the one that people are choosing. That's the one that takes the popularity contest easily. But that gate leads to destruction, and it cannot be a gate that you desire to walk through. John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate, in other words. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. See, the heart is carrying us like a current towards this wide door that leads into destruction because every one of us has violated God's law. Every one of us has heard that God wants us to do a certain thing and be a certain way and trust in Him alone. And yet our human hearts say, no, 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 no. I've got a better way. I've got a more efficient way. I can judge for myself where to walk and how to live and where to go and what to love. And so the human heart naturally goes to destruction. But God in His great mercy has endured sinners like us. He doesn't just punish us right away, though He is a perfect judge, though He is a perfect king. He gives time. And He reveals to us through His perfect word that He has a plan to save many. That the way to salvation is one. It is not through our good deeds. It is not through any sort of penance that we do. It is not by giving money to good causes or being considerate to people. It is not by avoiding the really bad sins and only committing the little social sins that nobody really cares about. None of those paths will lead us to the narrow gate. The narrow gate is a path that is marked by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son has come to dwell with us. He has left the security and the safety and the peace of heaven so that He could come down into our chaos and intercept our lives. He walked in truth and fulfilled the full law of God in a way that none of us could ever hope to do. And then he gave his life as a sacrifice on our behalf. And by dying on the cross, he said, those who trust in me can experience this death that I just died right now. They can experience the good that comes from this death. They will not have to suffer like I am suffering because in their physical death, they will be raised to a new life which they will experience with God in heaven forever. The debt that they owe to God, the wrath that they should pay because of their sin, is punished on Christ. And that is the only way to eternal life. Do you see that the majority opinion is not always right, my friends? We cannot embrace pragmatism simply because it, it is popular and it is common and people do it all the time. Rather, we must listen to the voice of a God who loves us enough to warn us of our destruction and to suffer in our place so that we won't have to experience it. Let me give you a third reason why pragmatism falls short. Getting what you want now at the expense of everything you want later is a very foolish way to live. Consider some of the dark realities of the pragmatic way of life. Pragmatism is one of the reasons why so many people today have found themselves addicted to some substance that they feel in the moment will help them to escape from the challenges and the trials that they are enduring in their life. They don't want to have to deal with what is happening right now. So practically, what do they do? They look for whatever route will help them to escape it, and often that route is a chemical that dulls their senses for a time a chemical that makes it possible for them to think that the things that they have to deal with, they don't really have to deal with them, that they can put them to the side. 
And what does that do to the individual? It does give them a sense of relief and release for a moment, doesn't it? We would be foolish to think that there is no good, at least temporary good or relief that comes from drugs and alcohol. And yet we also, with a sober mind, would confess as one that the eventual place that takes you is wide, isn't it? It is the wide gate. When we are trusting in a chemical instead of in Jesus Christ for our sanctuary and salvation, if that is the relief that we need is in a bottle or in a pipe or in a syringe, then we have, we have bowed at the idol of the wrong God. Pragmatism leads to pornography use. A man who wants to be seen as desirable, a man who wants to fulfill the desires of his flesh, Practically, it is much easier to just pay a fee and look at images on a screen. He can tell himself he's not hurting anybody by doing this, that it's just him. So this sin must have no real consequence, but he is only avoiding the truth that by participating in this wicked act, he is belittling a human being who is made in the image of God. A daughter, a son, the Lord God Almighty, in sin, is being exalted of their sin by the person who is participating in that act even if they don't see each other, even if they're on the other side of a screen. Pragmatism leads to this kind of behavior. I was reading some statistics. January is a month in which we pay special attention to a crisis of abortion in the world. I was on Planned Parenthood's own website looking at their report for 2019 and the victories that they're claiming that their organization has helped to win in the lives of poor young women who don't know what they're doing to themselves. Planned Parenthood reported that they were involved with 342,000 abortions in 2019. 342,000. It's more than the population of Honolulu. Can you imagine... If something were to happen tomorrow and 342,000 human beings, no matter what culture they lived in, died in that moment, can you imagine the mourning that would overtake this world? And yet last year, pragmatism, practical inconvenience, caused scared women to go to clinics to ask someone, to pay someone to end the life of a baby in their womb, a defenseless child, who has no voice of his own. This is the dangers of pragmatism, folks, that when we begin to look at our lives as, what is practical for me, then, then we can begin to justify, I, I don't have the money to afford a child right now. I didn't want to get pregnant. I, I'm not prepared for this. My, my plate is already full. I can give myself dozens of reasons why this is difficult. And those reasons the pragmatists are enough for them to say, well then, this rule that life is precious, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to now. But perhaps the most serious of all these is the dishonorable ways that people approach God with this practical, pragmatic mentality. What kind of a deal can I get from God? I, I'm interested in this, Lord, but, but what does he have to offer me now? How can he bless me right now in my life? What is the, small, the smallest amount of investment I could put into the Lord God in order to get the greatest amount of return for him? I like this idea of eternal life, but I also like ruling my life right now. So 
How do I get both of these things? If you look back at verse 10, this pragmatic approach is not exclusive to the irreligious, is it? The wicked who were mourned at their deaths were found in the temple. They went to God's house. They sang the songs. They gave alms. They praised Him through music. They prayed together. And yet the heart was wicked. There are good things to be gotten through church involvement. And people in the world see this. They see the the joy of fellowship. They see the encouragement that comes from brothers and sisters who know your name and want to know your story and will listen to you when you go through difficult stuff. They, They love that there is relief that often comes through this organization called the church, the body of Christ. There is approval from other noble people, if you, if you simply walk the way you're supposed to and say the things you're supposed to say, you can even gain influence and power or maybe a pulpit in the church of God. A lot of practical benefits, right? So don't be deceived into thinking that pragmatism is an outside problem, folks. This leads some to decide that in so much as it doesn't really hamper my goals, I will be connected to the church. I will reap the benefits of being involved here. But the same person often carries the mindset that when church begins to encroach upon their personal freedoms, they will either pivot and find a different, red, less biblical church, or they will walk away altogether. The pragmatic way of life leads to a fickle fellowship, one that has no enduring power, one that must remain shallow and cannot establish lasting roots for fear that a better soil may one day present itself. I can't be, be too connected here because I might get a better deal down the line and then I need to be able to pivot. I need to be able to move. This philosophy has made its impact not only on the level of the individual believer or professing believer, but also at the level of church leadership. There's a very pragmatic metric by which too many churches judge their success and failure. And that metric is attendance. People in seats, warm bodies within the walls of the church. If it puts people in the seats, if more people are attending church because of it and being involved with the things that the church is doing, well, that means that this must be a good practice, right? A church must be a good church if there are a lot of people going there. It means that God is blessing that church if they're growing, doesn't it? It means they must be doing something right, right? Not necessarily, friends. The World Wrestling Federation fills stadiums on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. What does that mean? Does that mean you should go there for truth? Does that mean you should go there for doctrine on life and eternity? No. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. We want to reach people with the gospel, but the way to do that is not to make the church wider. The way we reach people with the truth is by telling the truth. And that keeps the gate narrow. That means that many who have no interest in denying themselves and taking up a cross will say, thanks but no thanks, I'll go join a different group. Telling the truth is hard, and it's often going to lead to pragmatic people turning away, but making it easy by turning church into an entertainment hour that meets people's perceived needs will only prevent people from entering the narrow gate. When pragmatism takes center stage, Theology begins to give way to methodology. And that is why if you were to go on your phone or your computer later on today and search churches, just do a basic search on churches, and you look at some websites of churches, what are you going to find on most websites? Lots of news about the great things that are going on at the church 
and maybe tucked away somewhere deep in the website a very brief statement of what that church believes. Almost not even worth mentioning. So vague and ambiguous that it could mean a hundred thousand different things. It's very rare when you find a church that says, here is who we are. We're not about the lights and the smoke. We're not about all the activities. We have ministries, but what we're about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the Bible teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is what this church will teach. If you come to this church, this is what you will learn about Jesus Christ. And we all want to be conformed to Jesus Christ. So if you desire that, that's who we are. Prioritizing what is expedient over what is right sets us on an increasingly negligent path away from God's perfect and unchanging will. Theologian Charles Bridges wrote, Nothing is more easy than to ruin ourselves forever. Only sit still and do nothing, and we perish in our own slumber. That's humbling, isn't it? And he goes on to describe in the commentary I was reading on Ecclesiastes that, that vice is progressive. Sin is progressive. It begins as pleasing. And then it grows to be easy to do it. And then we delight in it. And then we frequent that sin. And then it becomes habitual for us. And then it is confirmed in our lives. It becomes a part of our identity. And then the man is impenitent. And then he is obstinate to God. And then he resolves never to repent. And then he is damned. And then he walks through his wide gate to the destiny that he chose for himself. Verses 12 and 13, friends. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it would be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. Not because their choice was practical and common sense ruled the day, but because they fear God. Verse 13, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. We're beginning to get down to the distilled part that really matters. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes will drive this home really strongly in chapter 12. But friends, what it boils down to is it doesn't really matter whether you understand everything about life or not. None of us does. Seek to know what you can, but what really matters is do you fear God or not? Is He on the throne of all that He has made? Do you offer to him a respect and an honor that only comes when he will soften your hard heart and take your rebellion away? Or do you stand with a clenched fist before him, ready to tell him how you're going to live your life? Do you fear the Lord God? Why, if pragmatism is so dangerous, why is it so widespread? Well, there are enough examples of people who seem to sin and get away with it that we may be tempted to think that they have indeed sidestepped calamity and were able to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. Their evil doing may even appear at times to have a practical advantage over the life of the believer. It seems to prolong their life, maybe even. Solomon pushes back against this notion, declares that those who do what is immediately impractical, those who follow the Lord God even when it goes against the grain of common culture and society, when they deny themselves in order to honor God, they will not be disappointed. <clears throat> Remember when we talked about how some of those commands to deny themselves or to love the enemy or 
to forgive even when somebody is not worthy of forgiving, that these are paradoxical commands. But when you walk in them, there is practical benefit in them now. How many times have somebody wronged me and I could have held on to that in bitterness and I could have let it be like a cancer in my heart and soul, but because of the forgiveness that Christ has given to me, I chose to instead follow after his command and say, I forgive you instead and I will love you anyway, even though you have hurt me. And the freedom that I've experienced from that, the chains that have fallen away from me that otherwise would bind me now because I've done what was impractical and went against common sense, Praise God for his instruction. It will be well for those who fear the Lord because they have chosen to fear God and trust his commands rather than to play God themselves and make their own rules based on what they see as immediately beneficial in the here and now. And so friends, do not allow yourself to be deceived by the seductive idea that God is not a competent judge. When you don't think you're really going to be judged for your sins, that's what you're saying. You're saying that God's not a competent judge. He will, absolve, he will not absolve the wicked apart from true repentance and, depend, uh, repentance and dependence, dependence upon Jesus Christ. Justice from the Lord may not be swift, but oh, it is sure. It will come to pass. When you refuse to put the Lord's commands first and instead you live life practically and try to do whatever is expedient in the moment, you're never going to have understanding Because where does understanding begin? Where does knowledge begin? It begins at the fear of the Lord. No fear of the Lord means that you will have no respect for His truth. And this leaves somebody open to manipulation. It leaves them open to deceit. When you are practical, there's always going to be somebody who's more practical than you. And they're they're prone to take you for a ride. No fear of the Lord means that you'll be spending your worship energy, your affections, your desires on lesser things temporary things that might give you a spark of hope for a moment, but ultimately fade away, usually much quicker than we think they will. And how practical is that? How ultimately common sense is it to give yourself fully to 80 years if God has designed you to live in eternity? How practical is that? When you begin to have an eternal perspective on life, the only practical decision is to trust the Lord God who knows more than you know and who holds the keys to the only gate that leads anywhere except destruction. We must live lives beyond what is simply evident to us. Evidence can sometimes be deceiving. A person who fears the Lord, does what is right, and rejects wickedness may nevertheless find themselves suffering. We see people who at times are holy people who love the Lord, and yet their life does not abound with money. It does not have the kiss of blessing, of, 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 of physical health. They suffer and they strive. Does that mean that God is not with that individual? No. Because God's truth is bigger than the moment. God's plan is comprehensive. He doesn't just get you through right now. He knows what all of this will lead to. He knows what all of it will mean for you eternally. And so when we read in verse 14 that there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, we can rejoice when he says, and I said that this is also vanity. We can rejoice in that. The term vanity, don't forget, though it often means meaningless, it often means a shadow that isn't a reality, it also talks about transition. 
Many of you have been waking up early in the morning, and when you wake up, there's a blanket of fog over Antioch and Brentwood and Oakley, wherever you live. But as the day goes on, what happens to that thick blanket of fog? It's a mist that vanishes as the sun gets stronger and the heat increases. And so this Ecclesiastes is teaching us that the, the temporariness of life is not just saying that it is meaningless, it's saying that it is transitionatory. That though we have to endure for a while, good people going through wicked stuff, dealing with hardships and suffering, that this too shall pass, that the fog will lift, and that the God that we have come here to worship and trust today has made an ending to this story that is glorious for those who trust in Him, an ending that will endure forever, an ending that cannot experience corruption. And so a seemingly unjust condition is observed here by the preacher of Ecclesiastes, but it is not enough to discourage him. Solomon does not surrender himself into empty pragmatism. He sees so much with his wise eye, but he also understands that we are wicked or righteous, not based on the results of our life, but based on whether we trust in God to be our shelter. The New Testament believer, we have the words to put to that, to say that it's for those who are in Christ, then the suffering of this world is only a small thing. Those who are in Him as shelter, we are righteous, not because of what we've done, not because of the evidence of a huge outpouring of blessing that God has given to us financially or health-wise or with many friends. We are His because Christ is righteous and we belong to Him. The apparent injustice of the world is only possible for a time. And so much as God is pleased to delay the condemnation of the wicked, and this reality will lead to our great frustration, but because His promises are always kept, we can by no means afford to allow the current of the world to dictate what we believe, that we might forsake what is eternal and good and holy for what seems practical in a fleeting moment. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? We thank you, Lord God, for the wonderful truths of your scripture, these truths which I hope awaken us and remind us that though the numbing nectar of pragmatism is all about us, that we have been called to be a different people, that you have called us to a holiness that is set apart, to a way of life that is different and is not dependent upon majority rules or perception about what is good in the here and now or what our culture tells us is right, but depends fully on your perfect word. And so I pray, God, that you would use this word in our lives this day and every day going forward as a magnificent tool to craft us into the kind of people that would glorify you, that would give you honor and grace, and that would, as a lighthouse, lead others away from the shores of destruction and towards that narrow gate, that port of hope, Jesus Christ, our strong Savior. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.